Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo decoded report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestion, endo aligned product matching in your state, suggested dosage guidelines, and optimum methods of administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeka soft gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeka Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. What's up, everyone? It is 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News, where we explain marijuana laws so you can change them. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ethan Russo. We're going to be speaking to him in about 10 minutes. But first, we do have to get into a little bit of cannabis legalization news. So, Mickey and Tom, what's going on in the week? This week. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. This week was big. This week yeah. saw Illinois have uh, uh, changes to its bill that didn't make it. And then it also saw a, uh, we're going to get the bad news out of the way first. Uh, the South Dakota governor is behind the litigation to stop South Dakota from what the people wanted to do, legalize cannabis, both uh, medicinally and also recreationally. So she created an executive order to authorize a lawsuit to challenge the validity of Amendment A. So and then she's saying that it was not proper. This happens sometimes uh, when... Um, when the when the administration of a state isn't on board with the new law that yeah. you know a ballot initiative uh, allowed, you see this. And so, like people call me from South Dakota all the time. It's like, how are we gonna get in the industry over there? I'm like, well, it's the worst waiting game is what it is, you know, because marijuana cannabis is always gonna have this opposition for no reason. Like there is no valid. We could ask reason. our guest if there is a valid scientific reason for uh, any of this stuff that has been the official legal policy of our government and that South Dakota's governor wants to challenge and maintain uh, in that jurisdiction. But it's not all bad. I mean, like, sure, the news out of South Dakota was bad, but the news out of J New Jersey really isn't that bad. In New Jersey, we've done a lot of content about their types of licenses that they have. The real sticking point on that now is for individuals that are younger than the uh, age for, uh, for adult use. And so they're, they're making sure that even if you're like a juvenile that's caught with, with cannabis, you'd still not face criminal liability, that's something good. along those lines. But uh, I mean, it means that they're really getting close on that. Uh, it's a non-toxic plant. What's that? It's, it's a non-toxic plant. It shouldn't even be an issue. Like this debate is so, it's a waste of time, but it's fortunately we have to do it so we can get to the point where we can go to a store or travel across state lines with a, a pound of sugar 
Or whatever you want. <laughs> yep. Yep. I tell you, but I do have some more news out of Illinois. Illinois okay. was, yeah, Illinois had its uh, session and now another session's uh, and so like Illinois has a veto session and like a lame duck session. And then the next day they're they're sworn in. So now they've been sworn in in Illinois. And this is their new one, their amendment to House Bill 122. And so this one will have to up. Oh, it was filed yesterday. Uh, so I think they just were seated today. It may have to be refiled, but this is essentially it. What they're trying to do in Illinois is create a second lottery uh, for uh applicants that achieved over an 85% score now. But how do you know? Because the KPGA is still not transparent. Like these yeah, are arbitrary. The scores. They are supposed to redo the scores. They haven't done that yet. Okay. It's, it's supposed to happen. Bullshit, dude. But I got a well, question for you. It's, the, it's a disaster order in Illinois. And so Illinois is this disaster order because it's closed and JP Pritzker renewed it uh, last week. And so that's going to go until February 8th. And we'll just see how many people get their inoculations. <laughs> What uh, I got a question from this weekend. Somebody hit me up asking for Illinois um, for clones. Uh, if I had five clones, but they don't have THC in them, are they still counted as plants? Uh, the the definition of plants in Illinois was bad because it just says five cannabis plants over five inches. So provided the clones more than five inches tall, it would count. And and oh. so we're trying to get that amended. And that's something that we'd like to see. Uh, it should be five mature cannabis plants. And then you would define mature cannabis plants as those that are flowering. So either male, male or female. I mean, so you could have some pollination, but not really. I mean, yeah, Still, five plants. again, arbitrary numbers and, and BS people in charge. Speaking of arbitrary numbers, how much do you think one gram of uh, birthday cake costs in Illinois for recreational prices? One uh, gram. I mean, we're talking high end because, uh, you know, even with a brand birthday cake, it could be mm -hmm. low grade grow or high grade grow. So, well, I mean, like I, I've already looked at the gram uh, and it's smalls. I mean, like it's not it's not big. So, like these aren't not it's not one nugget. It's just just dinky little nuggets. And I weighed it. It was one point one gram. So at least it was a fat gram. How much do you think one gram of birthday cake is in Illinois? Popcorn, but imagine probably 15 bucks. $20. And that's before the taxes. And the taxes were $2 uh, plus another 60 cents for the local plus 60 cents for the city plus a sales tax of a buck 80. So uh, it was $25 for the gram. Wow. Yep. And, and then it was smalls. Uh, and then meanwhile, at home, you know, I can be like, I can just go back to the home grow and it's it's not going to be smalls or, or nothing like that. And the terp profile is better, too. And so, like, the nose just isn't very, very nice. But right. uh, it smoked well. I mean, it looks nice still. Again, you know, at least you and I can have this comparison because we've been doing this for so long around the plant. But uh, a new consumer is not going to know. A new consumer is not going to know what uh, quality is or uh, could be. Because that's just horrible. I feel bad for your people. I feel bad for patients in that in that area. It's it's expensive to have medicine. That would be very expensive to have medicine. Now again, uh, that that gram I still think would have been twenty bucks if I would have used my medical card and not gone to the adult use place. But um, twenty dollars for a gram of medicine—that's still a really high price, you know. Damn. Bought birthday cake uh, outdoor here for eighty-five bucks an ounce. That's good. This was one twenty-eighth of that. <laughs> for $25. But that's Oklahoma and, too. That's where the bars set low to get into the industry. And this is where it reflects that's where the, the producers are. That's where the supply is. I mean, that's, that's, that's really where the market should be. If people were able to actually grow and supply the streets with the necessary amount of cannabis, 
like I told you before, here in Washington, when it was uh, uh, medical, it was like a great, just capitalistic, organic bartering scene where people would walk in. You could sample wares. You could sample before I commit to a whole ounce or whatever. You know, there was right. It was there, and people would give you samples too because it was so abundant. When 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 you have a market so flooded with the plant, uh, and where people figure out in their own as an entity what it costs to make it, and you know that's. But then when you add, like, say, the, with the 502 structure, with the 25% tax on top of it, how do I? Oh, yeah. The taxes are, the taxes were the 25% of the $20 gram. Yeah. But, man, it, it, that's going to be coming to states like New Jersey, and that's going to be coming to states like New York. New York dropped its bill then, too. And New York, it looks like it's going to have, um, New York's bill is similar to New Jersey's and different from Illinois in this respect that New York's bill is thin. It's only like 110, 120 pages. So like where they co cover all the licenses, including its application aspect, it was only like five pages in the middle of the law. So we're going to be building some uh, new pages for the Cannabis Industry Lawyer website. Don't forget to head over there. Uh, and they have the adult use processor license, a small business cooperative license, an adult use distributor retail dispensary, micro-business delivery, and nursery, and then, of course, then cultivation. So it's going to be interesting to see how New York takes this very tiny little piece of law, and then they assign all the, the responsibilities to the administrative wing. Uh, how is that going to work its way out? So like New York's w application window, assume that they passed this tiny bill that they have currently. It, it might take an, over a year. Because then yeah. they're going to have to do all the uh, administrative rulemaking, then they're going to have to comment on it, and then they're going to have those effective rules, and then they'd have an application date. So it's going to be interesting to see how New York shapes up, and New Jersey probably also. And these processes are not speedy. I mean, even once the MORE Act passes, if it passes, uh, legalization is not there, right? We're not no. going to be uh, – uh, uh, okay, it's all good now. Everybody go home. We're right. Done. No, it's not going to be like that. So, like, do you think that there's a scientific basics at all for these types of crazy structures and these these really weird regulations that push the price of this up into the stratosphere? <sighs> Greed's part of it, but you know, uh, the lack, the ignorance, right? Like, you know, like like today we're going to talk to Dr. Ethan Russo, and he can talk tell us. We can talk about the endocannabinoid system, like this thing that's in our body. We don't have a meth system. We have an endocannabinoid system. The plant's part of us, man. Well, let's let's do that, man. Let's bring him on. Yeah, let's bring Dr. Russo on. Let's see. Hey, Dr. Russo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For the uninitiated, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you guys are doing at Credo Science? Sure. Well, I'm a neurologist by training, but I've worked in the cannabis space now for 25 years. A big part of that was 11 years full-time with GW Pharmaceuticals in the development of Sativex and Epidiolex, which are the only two cannabis-based pharmaceuticals. Um, subsequently, the last several years, I've worked for private companies, culminating this year in development of my own company, Credo Science which is an intellectual property holding company working on ideas that I have related to cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. And also we're offering consultation uh, for formulations, uh, both for the supplement industry and potentially the pharmaceutical industry as well. That's fantastic. Licensing rights in cannabis IP. We've had this show recently. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. We actually had Dale on. I think uh, Dale's the cannabis IP lawyer out in California. That'd be Dale Hunt. 
Dale Hunt, I, yeah. He's, I also uh, work with Dale in uh, an organization called Breeders Best. I'm the medical director of that. So that's a company that's devoted to developing intellectual property for independent breeders so that they will have protection for their um, production, uh, their novel chemovars, um, and also providing them a way to uh, access uh, markets for them, uh, both domestically and internationally. Awesome. Well, man, so you've been, dis when did you first become aware of the endocannabinoid system? Uh, well, you know, I heard about it. Uh, I was in practice uh, circa 1988 to 91 was when all the major breakthroughs came through with uh, the discovery of uh, endocannabinoid receptors, then the endocannabinoids themselves. Um, so it was uh, around that time. So it was something I heard about, but I certainly wasn't intimately involved at that point. That took another few years. Were you in like a lot of people when they learn about the endocannabinoid system? Were you at first skeptical? Were you like, no, nah, this is not a thing that is part of our nervous system and our bone structure? No, it immediately resonated mm. uh, that hey, <laughs> you know, here's the explanation for what we've we've known all along that this is a, a very powerful potentially therapeutic agent. Uh, you know, previously people had thought, oh, you know, maybe THC perturbs uh, cell membranes uh, in the brain cells like alcohol does. And mm. boy, that wasn't correct. Um, mm. But that's difficult to work with. It took a lot longer to figure out because uh, everybody usually thinks of alkaloids working on receptors. And here we had this sort of uh, lipophilic, uh, fat-loving molecules, and it was really different uh, to what was customarily thought to be important in pharmacology. Mm. Fascinating. Okay. Now, where were you doing this research? Because if this was being done 20, 25 years ago, and it's, it's just, you know, fascinating stuff, I want to know if this research was being disturbed by uh, a federal government. Were you in uh, the United States or were you in UK or can you yeah. explain that? Well, you know, initially I was in practice. Uh, I was in practice through 2003 and, you know, my involvement with uh, cannabis uh, on, you know, on a really intensive basis began in 1996. So at one point I had three jobs. I had a full-time neurology practice uh, I had a consultation uh, job with GW Pharmaceuticals before I came on full time. And I was doing writing and editing uh, related to cannabis and medicinal herbs. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was an intensive uh, time of my life. <laughs> uh, basically, in the late 90s, I was trying to go through the federal government and uh, get permission to do a study of cannabis use to treat migraine and basically got stonewalled, um, as almost everybody did uh, at that time, culminating in 1999 when uh, I got permission from the Food and Drug Administration to do the study, but then the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which had and still has a monopoly on the domestic supply for research, refused to provide any uh, cannabis for the study. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, things are really not altogether different than they were uh, back then. You know, it's been decades and we feel failed to have the progress that we need. 
um, in allowing research. And this is an explanation why uh, for a majority of the last uh, 25 years that I've been doing this work, I've worked for foreign companies. Yes, that's because I'm like, well, GW Pharmaceutical, I think they're from the UK. And so I'm not sure where you're doing this research, uh, how it's getting done, like who's funding it. And it's just an enigma to me because I'm like, well, this had to be that there's just no way that would have gotten done, you know? Well, um, you're looking at my office. Uh, there's no lab here. Most of the research goes on in my head with the assistance of these many books and files. Um, but, uh, you know, I collaborate with uh, physicians and scientists all over the world. Um, some of them have labs and uh, we manage even during the COVID era. Although, uh, you know, it was tough enough before. <laughs> Uh, it's really tough now. No, no, I just asked one. Go for it, Maggie. I was going to say, I, I was listening to uh, one of your uh, uh, interviews before, and uh, I think part of the problem, how you explained before, as far as like the research goes, because some of it was pretty invasive, right? The uh, the spinal tapping for the the, the, the the cannabinoids, the measurement between people with migraines versus people with not migraines. It's like, oh. I, my, my, I had a friend whose dad was a trucker, big man, scary. And he said the only time he saw his dad cry is during a spinal tap. And uh, uh, I couldn't imagine that. <laughs> it's a delicate procedure. But yeah, you know, I proposed that study back in 2004, recognizing that I couldn't get it through an institutional review board, an ethics committee in this country. But the rules were a little different in Italy. And in 2007, they did the study I'd proposed, and it showed what I thought it would, would which is that there is a marked deficit in endogenous cannabinoid uh, production in people with migraine. Uh, so it's uh, the first objective proof, if you will, of the clinical endocannabinoid deficiency theory. That's fascinating. I recall my one of my friends, Jeff, in college had complained of migraines, and he would mention that he smoked, and it was you know, 20 years ago, so it was less cool than it is now, uh, or way less accepted. Uh, and so he mentioned that that did actually provide him some relief. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure most people still think that uh, it's just an excuse to get high, but that's far from it. Historically, cannabis has been used for, to treat migraine, documented for at least a thousand years. Um, and uh, between about uh, 1843 and 1941, uh, it was a mainstream medicine for migraine, both in this country and in Europe. Um, and it was used both acutely for a headache, but especially as a preventive. Um, so, a drug to take daily. Uh, to cut down on the frequency and severity of migraine attacks where it's uniquely effective. Hmm. Hmm. Well, with your decades of research into the, the cannabis plant and its science and, and its interactions with humans, um, how do you think it should be regulated on a federal level? Uh, pretty easy. I mean, it does not belong in the Controlled Substances Act scheduling. Uh, just for people who don't know, um, after uh, U.S. versus Leary in the Supreme Court, there was a time of 18 months during which there was no federal law against cannabis because they had ruled the 1937 law unconstitutional. Mm. So, however, it had little force or effect at that time because each of the 50 states already had their own laws against cannabis. 
Mm-hmm. So what they decided was uh, they'd have the Controlled Substances Act, and they put cannabis in Schedule One as a dangerous, addictive drug with no recognized medical use as a placeholder, pending uh, the Schaefer Commission, uh, which was put together to study the matter scientifically, which they did. And also to get Democratic votes, which it did. But, uh, you know, they came out with the idea that cannabis should be decriminalized, number one, and number two, that it should be available medically. But President Nixon nixed that, um, and we've been had this mired in Schedule One uh, for the ensuing now 50 years, count them. Uh, it never belonged there. It doesn't belong there. And uh, it's just the kind of scientific contradiction that uh, only the legal system can explain. Uh, and even then, with only uh, with great effort and yeah. incredulity on the part of anybody that knows yeah. what's going on. Uh, and but then I, I have, that's one of the reasons I wrote that book that I did 10 years ago. And then like, it's hilarious in the sense that when I wrote it, I had to be a historical fiction about like, well, this this law is unconstitutional and here's why. But nobody will ever, no judge will ever hear this case because they're going to say this is an inherently a political issue. And I don't think that's accurate because this is a criminal issue. You're taking everything yeah. from these people and you're branding them as a felon. Yeah, That's not political. You know, that's uh, yeah. it really is causing damage to their, their life, liberty and happiness. And you're saying that this is a at its core, a commercial regulation. And I'm like, if it's a commercial regulation, why is this guy got a felony in 10 years on him? You know? Sure. Well, it's only 700,000 people a year they're arresting for cannabis. So no biggie. Well, you know, yeah. you, I love the, to- the the term that you coined, the endocannabinoid deficiency. Um, as a, a, an activist, I like to joke that the society has uh, vitamin THC deficient. Like, you know, this is something that we're an imbalance. Like, it's like scurvy. You know, when they found out that vitamin C was a thing, uh, you know, this, this cannabis, uh, the plant itself, are, you know, it's inherent to us, to our existence. And the, the, the way when it's scheduled is ridiculous. Sure. Well, to be fair... What we've got is a generalized endocannabinoid deficiency in our society, but some of this is related to diet and lifestyle. Now, in situations where you don't try to fix that aspect of things, yes, people may need supplementation uh, with material that comes from the plant cannabis, uh, but there are different approaches to this, uh, to be fair. Uh, you know, we got a question from uh, somebody named Ed, and he wanted to know if you thought that terpenes can have an effect on the type of high that someone experiences when they consume it. Okay, well, let's deal with this backwards. Um, for anybody who's had the experience of taking Marinol, which is pure synthetic THC, uh, and had the opportunity to compare this with cannabis, the experiences are nothing alike. Uh, and the difference is, you, uh, until recently, when uh, CBD became more available, the only things that were typically in cannabis were THC with this other stuff, the aromatic compounds called terpenoids. Um, and so we also have millions of consumers that uh, use different chemovars, chemical varieties of cannabis. Why? Just because was one smells better? No, it's because of the effects that they feel. Different kinds of cannabis have distinctly different effects on that's medical, 
It's also experiential, meaning that for some cannabis, you get couch lock. That's great if you need to relax in the evening or go to sleep. Um, for other people, uh, they may prefer a kind of cannabis where they feel energetic and go out and clean the garage. Um, so yes, there are distinct differences, and much of this has been documented, and we can go through specific terpenoids and their effects on THC and cannabis in general. Um, but um, yeah, this is a concept uh, called the entourage effect, the idea that you have soloists like THC and CBD, and that these terpenoids will um, influence or uh, modify uh, the effects. And that can be to add to its uh, benefit on pain. It also can be um, in reducing side effects of THC, which is often a very helpful thing. For the uneducated, because we're talking about terpenes, and, and, and terpenes, which is found in, besides cannabis, you know, lavender, uh, uh, citrus, um, but in cannabis in particular, terpenes are located underneath the trichomes, am I correct? Yeah, they're in the trichomes, same area of production as the cannabinoids, and they're half-siblings because they have the same precursor, geranol pyrophosphates. So they have one parent in common. I like yes. to say that uh, they're half-siblings that get along better than most. <laughs> what parent in common is that? Because I've heard like the parent for the, the cannabinoids is CBG or something like that. Well, that's but... first cannabinoid in line, but you've already gone past geranol pyrophosphate by one step to get to CBG, but geranol pyrophosphate can also lead to production of the monoterpenoids, limonene, myrcene, or the sesquiterpenes like, uh, like caryophyllin. Yeah, and if you guys like that, please smash them likes and subscribes because that was awesome. Thank you for breaking that down uh, for us, Dr. Russo. Then in the, uh, how our body absorbs it, right, with the, with the receptors. Now, I think people are in the impression, like with the nervous system, you know, if you ever go to the body of art, you've seen like the body layered and, and skin and nervous and cells and everything. But the, the receptors and the CB1, CBG, we're talking about cells, right? We're talking about floating systems connecting us when they send their messages that way. Yes. Right. So uh, to break it down, we have this stuff called anandamide, an endocannabinoid, a cannabinoid within. It's very analogous to THC. Both are what are called weak partial agonists at the CB1 receptor. This is meaning that they bind to this receptor uh, in the brain and elsewhere. But in the brain, its main function is to turn down the release of other neurotransmitters. And there are more CB1 receptors in the brain than there are for all the neurotransmitters put together. So wow. you might think that it's rather important. Um, it really has a role in everything our brain does. And in fact, almost every aspect of our physiology. So whether it's uh, how you think, whether you're going to vomit or not, whether you're going to have a seizure, what your digestion is, uh, you name the function, there's an influence of the endocannabinoid system upon it. And how, then let's dive into the two main ones that I hear of. I hear like the CB1 receptor and the CB2 receptor, and then THC impacts one of them and CBD impacts the other one. Can you help me out on what I'm saying here? Yeah. So uh, THC is a weak partial agonist at both the CB1 and CB2 receptor. 
So CB1, again, is in the brain. It's the main psychoactive receptor, and it's responsible for effects of THC, like reducing muscle tone and spasticity. Um, it has an anti-seizure effect. Uh, it makes people laugh. Uh, but additionally, it um, uh, has effects on the gut, both on secretion and propulsion. There are lots of places it works, and it's uh, a painkiller. CB2 is mainly out in the body, and it is an anti-inflammatory receptor and an immunomodulatory receptor that is not psychoactive. So if you have a chemical like caryophylline, which also comes from cannabis, that works on CB2 but doesn't work on CB1, then it is not intoxicating the way THC does. Um, so THC works on both CB1 and CB2. Caryophylline is actually higher uh, affinity for CB2. Um, and then CBD doesn't really bind directly to either one of CB1 or CB2. On CB1, however, it's what's called a negative allosteric modulator. To break that down, it means it binds to a different area of the receptor and changes the binding of THC to it. Wow. Um, and this is one of the ways that CBD reduces THC-associated side effects like anxiety, rapid heart rate, tachycardia, uh, things of that sort. Um, right. It's kind of why the entourage effect is important, right? Like each one needs a little thing to help each other. Sure. Yeah. So we think of soloist plus accompaniment. And the accompaniment, uh, you know, makes it a great tune rather than just mm. melody. But then all those topicals. The CBD topicals, garbage. Well, no. Uh, cannabinoids are great on the skin. Uh, so if there's inflammation or itch, can be a great thing. Where mm. people make a mistake is um, the cannabinoids are not absorbed into the bloodstream to any great degree from the skin. And so you can't treat an internal condition like seizures or generalized pain by applying any amount of uh, cannabinoids to the skin. Now, in contrast, uh, the terpenoids get through the skin quite well. And so if somebody has an aromatherapy massage uh, with lavender or other essential oils that contain the terpenoids, um, you're going to get blood levels of those. And yeah, beyond being relaxing from the massage itself, um, the linalool can act on the brain and uh, create a nice anti-anxiety effect. For like, as I mentioned, asked you before about Marinol. Marinol is a synthetic TAC, right? Like, isn't that the worst way to go out with medicine? Like a synthetic? Uh, well, you know, it's not that it's synthetic alone that's bad. It is THC in isolation. So this drug was approved for nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy clear back in 1985. Now, you can look at the sales figures, and they've never been there because THC alone is a lousy drug. It doesn't make people happy. It makes them dysphoric, unhappy. Uh, people take it feel very scattered. Uh, and anyone who's used both will tell you that the effect is quite, quite different. Uh, to that of cannabis. Um, so it's not a reasonable substitute and it's never had traction um, in, in medicine. 
that's good to hear actually <laughs> no it, it's but it just is bizarre again with uh cannabis and its legal structure and uh, schedule one substance because like you hear that and like you know it's completely the opposite of anything else you know it's like oh my gosh that heroin was so pure yeah he really he went too far like he liked it too much but like with thc it's like oh he had that pure stuff never went back it's terrible you know um sure yeah makes no sense no sense at all and it's just the plant that is that i mean it's marinol when you make it in a lab is schedule three right uh it is uh, uh only in america but you know you torture the logic and you can have a situation where uh synthetic thc is in schedule three and thc in any other form uh, is schedule one and forbidden uh, and we've got similar um weird thinking uh, in the schedule. Uh, there's a drug called Xyrem or Oxybate. Um, as Xyrem, it's uh, schedule three um, for treating narcolepsy, um, but um, as uh, gamma hydroxybutyrate, the chemical name, it's a schedule one date rape drug. Oh. Yeah. For that one. Is the... Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned one other thing. Um, if God forbid, you have a heart attack on the street in London. When you need pain relief, you're going to get heroin. Um, <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, now they call it by a different name, a chemical name, but, um, you know, it, it is, uh, uh, it produces less nausea than morphine. Um, it, uh, it was a legitimate drug uh, for a long time before it obviously it is a dangerous drug when injected, particularly in the illicit market. But to say that it has no recognized medical use ignores uh, the science that uh, they well, use to treat of heart attacks in, in the UK. Well, isn't it what, a problem about heroin, though? I mean, heroin was created by Bayer originally. Correct. So, I mean, it had intentions for medicine. Uh, is the uh, endocannabinoid system taught in medicals? Like, since you were worked at GW Pharmaceuticals in, a, in an English company, you know, I, you know, because a lot of your older sciences will come from, you know, certain areas. Uh, is, is, but it's not being taught. I saw you shaking your head. As you uh, yeah, no, there's been a, an astounding lack. Uh, forget cannabis for a minute. I've already mm -hmm. mentioned if CB1 is the most abundant G protein couple receptor in the brain, um, it obviously has an important role in our physiology and merits attention. However, it doesn't get that. Um, and surveys have been done showing that hardly any of the medical schools teach this stuff, um, let alone uh, therapeutics of cannabis. Um, but I mean, their excuses are pretty hard to accept. Uh, it's like, okay, we'll put this in the curriculum. What are you gonna take out? Um, well, I can, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's, is my pancreas going to stop existing now? Is that what you're trying to tell me? It's like, yeah. we no, found this out in the early nineties. We might want to, you know, learn about yeah. it. Let, let me tell you, I was in medical school in the 1970s. It's a full curriculum. It's a lot of stuff. And now we've got, you know, 40, almost mm. 50 years, more stuff that you've got to learn. So it's difficult. Um, but that doesn't mean you ignore something as vital as the major homeostatic regulator of our physiology. And that's what the endocannabinoid system is. Mm. So uh, you, 
how accepted is this concept that the endocannabinoid system is not just something that you've never heard of? If I'm talking to a normal person, if I'm talking, well, you know, there's, there's some people that don't believe like, you know, for example, I'm talking to the governor of South Dakota who just sued her own state to overturn the will of her people. Right. And so, um, Tom, you're in the endocannabinoid system. You're assuming that uh, you can reason with people. And, and why <laughs> past week, there's a tremendous amount of ignorance out there, and it's not yeah. confined to politicians. Your average physician, when asked what the endocannabinoid system is, going to have a dumb stare in response. Um, you know, they just don't know. Um, now, to be fair, they're stuck in a situation where they've got to see a patient every 10 minutes if they're going to make a go of it uh, commercially in, in the current environment. So it's not conducive to a patient coming in with a stack of papers about their condition and how cannabis can treat it, let alone anything to do with the endocannabinoid system. Mm. It just isn't time in the day uh, to take it all in. So, you know, it falls to some of us that have been obsessed with this topic for decades to try and bring light to the ignorance, but uh, it's a full-time job. I can attest to that. <laughs> uh, well, we aren't going to stop until the people understand that their main homeostatic regulator mm. is the endocannabinoid system, and people need to know this. Like, there's, I, I deal with people. I don't deal with people as much because COVID and I don't do litigation anymore, but the people need these, these things. And, and so many of them are just in absolute denial about it. Yeah. But anyway, I, I prattle on, go ahead, Mickey. I was going to say, uh, Casey Kush, she has a question. Uh, what was your involvement with the pregnancy cannabis study in Jamaica? Well, I'm proud to say I'm a friend of Melanie Dreyer who did that and lots of, uh, studies in Jamaica. She had a book, um, this one, and Ganja, that blew the wheels off of the amotivational syndrome. She was able to show that people could work a lot harder when they had a spliff of ganja before they had to go out and work in the cane fields. Um, anyway, she did brilliant work um, as an anthropology grad student and went on to be dean of nursing at Northwestern. Um, and is now retired, but great lady, uh, did pioneering work. Um, she did a study in Jamaica that showed that Rastafarian women who use cannabis but no alcohol and were well-nourished um, had kids, uh, babies that were developmentally right on target and, in fact, advanced mm. uh, compared to their peers that didn't use cannabis. Now, there may have been other factors. Maybe some of them, the mothers drank or uh, weren't as well-nourished, um, but uh, it really demonstrated that, again, I don't recommend smoking for anybody, uh, particularly pregnant mothers, but um, the danger is minimal, um, and that was really highlighted by her pioneering studies. And aren't cannabinoids found in mother's milk, though? Um yeah, endocannabinoids, um, specifically anandamide is one of the things that spurs the brain to uh, make babies eat. Mm -hmm. um, so when that is blocked, as in uh, rodent pups, um, they actually die. Um, they don't eat and eventually waste away. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, this stuff is there. It's part of our essence and yes. uh, to deny it is just to repudiate science. Wow. Well, it's so, I was going to ask him then, you know, with, with all the research that you've done in your career, what's the, your favorite thing that you've discovered through your re research into cannabis? Well, you know, I, I think it would just be in support of the entourage effect. And we're, we're continuing to do this work. Um, currently, I'm working with Ryan Vondre at uh, Johns Hopkins, and we have studies underway, randomized control trials in humans uh, to try and show uh, the uh, entourage effect. Um, right. How can we do a randomized control study in humans for cannabis? I mean, because like, I don't think we could double blind that. I think I would know if I got the cannabis. Yeah, it uh, depends on how it's done. You do dose escalation. You can have a, a dose that's low enough that people aren't sure. Um, and you adjust the amounts of each factor and uh, compare the differences. Um, Is there still... A therapeutic benefit, even if the dose is like a micro dose. So are there benefits to micro yeah, there can be. And particularly when we're dealing with multiple compounds, there have been studies that really establish that um, uh, if you're testing pain thresholds, you can have a dose of morphine that on its own doesn't reduce pain, along with a dose of THC that doesn't reduce pain, but the two together reduce pain. Um, so yeah, you know, it really is, you've got to take into account um, the synergy, the boosting of effect that's possible with these different ingredients. Doctor, what do you say about like um, articles? Um, there's one recently in the CNN talks about toxins in marijuana smoke. Like the plant itself is not toxin, right? And, and depending on what you put into it and feed into it and how you flush it and treat it, that's what gives you the toxins. Am I correct? Well, uh, partially. Yeah, uh, you know, for example, uh, when uh, synthetic fertilizers are used, um, there can be a lot of ammonia in the smoke, and that's a neurotoxin. However, there are toxins in cannabis smoke, even if it's organic, totally organic. Again, I don't recommend smoking as a vehicle for administration. Um, it does not produce lung cancer if it's just cannabis, but you're, there are... Uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, the same as in tobacco smoke, uh, that have to be detoxified. They're potential carcinogens, and even if they don't cause cancer, you're stressing out your liver doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, if somebody needs an immediate effect or wishes to use it uh, to get high, then vaporization is preferred. Um, and again, it depends on what's in the mix. Uh, there can be good vapes and uh, more risky vapes. But uh, for medical usage, we're usually talking about chronic conditions. And in those situations, it's better to have an oral tincture or uh, an oral agent. It's going to give a smoother contour of effect with fewer peaks and valleys. Yeah. Um, so uh, people need to dose less frequently and there will be no lung issues or or issues of potential carcinogens. So when you mentioned uh, good vapes and not so great vapes, were you discuss were you meaning um, uh, botanical like flower heated vapes versus the oil-based vapes? What types of vapes do you recommend? Sure. Well, uh, you know, the cleaner the better. Uh, it should be purely cannabis derived ideally. 
Uh, we don't want any stuff like vitamin E acetate. Um, so, you know, this is when taken orally, no problem, but it, it was what led uh, to the lipoid pneumonia cases uh, from which there are a lot of people with lung damage and a few fatalities. Um, so, you know, and not artificial flavors and other crap. Um, you know, it's um, totally superfluous kid stuff. Um, yeah. You know, the, unfortunately, the cannabis industry lot, learned a lot of bad uh, tactics uh, from the tobacco industry. And, mm. um, I know, Sometimes I, I kind of feel like this one's called birthday cake and like it's all cookies and stuff. And like, so I'm like, wait, maybe they've learned their lessons from the candy industry you know, because like candy appeals to like, oh, this is going to be good. And like that inner child in you and stuff. And so I'm like, maybe that's why that's working so well, but right. Well, um, remember these so-called tastes are really coming from the aroma and that's terpenoids. The cannabinoids have no scent. So that isn't the way you're not tasting or smelling that uh, specifically. Uh, I had a question. Uh, somebody asked me uh, to ask you, uh, what do you know the terpenes that create the smell of skunk? Uh, it's actually probably not the terps. Um, in that instance, it's a very, very, very low concentration of what are called thiols. Um, so sulfur uh, containing chemicals. Um, and, you know, if you ask me, what do they do pharmacologically? Maybe nothing. I'm not sure. Uh, that we know, but that mm. characteristic smell is uh, just in certain uh, genetics of cannabis. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it may be something that attracts people and makes them want to buy that particular uh, type of cannabis, but um, mm. what it's really doing couldn't say much. Do you think the thiols, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the cultivar, I haven't heard of anybody having it lately, uh, cat piss. Uh, do you think those would also be the thiols then? Yeah, likely. You know, it could be, but yeah, our noses are really sensitive, not like a dog, but still a uh, few molecules of something, if it's strong, may, be, may register in the brain. Hmm. Um, and so it's a hard thing to analyze because it just doesn't take very much uh, to produce some of these odors. Um, and um, yeah. Is it like when your body, like like when you're hungry, you smell something, you're like, oh, my body's telling me I want that. I need that. Because um, I, I used to think like when I was early, when I was 18, 19, 20, uh, I would do weird stuff like take the stems and chew on them. And people were like, why are you doing that? I'm like, I don't know. My body just seems to like it's part of the plant. Like it's still, you know, and I could taste the aromas. I could taste the, you know, your flavor. Your body really just naturally likes this plant. I mean, uh what else out there like is like that? You know, besides like TH or uh, vitamin C, like I was talking about scurvy, what can we not go without out there? Well, lots of things you need. Um, but some of this gets to be a uh, conditioned response. Um, mm. you, know, you associate with uh, perhaps associate that taste and experience with the experience of, of uh, being high. Um, so there could be a lot of factors. Dr. Russo, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we go to find more about what you guys got going on at Credo Science? Okay, well, uh, the website is credo-science.com. Also, my writings are available at ethanrusso.org. Um, that's my personal website, so there shouldn't be any copyright issues, and uh, people could dig in there as they wish. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us again. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. We'll see you on Sunday. We're talking to Texas Normal. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste.